seated. You think Douglas was joking about the font comment. This evening, let's take a journey with Jesus and go through the Gospel of John and hit some of the points we find in that Gospel. But before we do that, let's go to our Father, to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that as we study Your Word and as we look at all of the different lines of evidence that You have provided, everything from the incredible creation in which we live that defies explanation by natural means, to to the love that has been announced through Your Word. Father, we pray that our faith might grow deeper in You and in Your Son. And Father, we want to remain in Your Son and to remain in the life that He has made available. And Father, we acknowledge freely that we are dependent on the eternal life that Jesus has given us. We pray, Father, that we might see life and live it with eyes that see it as You do. And so, Father, help us to have eyes that can see and, and ears that can hear as we study Your Word. That we might be shaped and strengthened in being the people that You would have us to be. We ask all these things, Father, through the name of Your Son. Amen. The Gospel of John invites us to journey with Jesus. As Jesus would travel from heaven before the world was made, to come to earth, to go through His ministry that will culminate in the cross, and then there is the resurrection and, and Christ returns back to the Father. It's a journey from heaven, then on earth, and then back up to heaven. And it begins in this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John will immediately point to us one goal for Jesus taking this journey to earth and to going through His ministry. In those opening verses, He tells us, In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. To use John's vocabulary, one purpose of Jesus' journey was to provide the light of eternal life in a dark world. This is an expedition that is going to be done for God, for, for His purposes. And so, Jesus obeys the Father and God sends His Son. 
And we will see through the journey how God will work through Jesus. And although this trip occurred some 2,000 years ago, it's a story as relevant today as it was then. For this is a journey that God wants to use to impact and to change each of our lives. This is a journey that describes God working on His terms. Sometimes people will say, Oh, if God would only do this, if He would show me what I want to see, I want to see this, I would find this convincing and believable. And so humans sometimes will put out their terms and and want God to jump through their hoops. But we are the creature. We are the created. And the story that we find in John is how God has worked and how He does this on His terms. And He provides sufficient evidence for those who are open. This journey is one that will provide eternal life. Something that is more valuable than anything else in this world. Have a house? Have some possessions? Have influence? Have a bank account? Have have things that are stored up? Have skill? How how much influence? How much power? How, How many friendships? All the different things that people have, that people value and treasure, and which have a certain degree of value. But eternal life is more valuable than any of these. It's more valuable than the education that we can get. Because it is the only thing that we can take on from this life. And so we read also about a second purpose that will come about in this journey. Jesus wanted to provide us with every reason to accept God's gift. He came. And to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Not only does this describe that first purpose purpose that Jesus had in coming onto this journey, which is to give us life and, and to have us so that we can be forgiven and claimed as God's children, but also here we see a second purpose. And that purpose is God wants us to accept Christ. And so Jesus is going to need to provide reasons as He travels on this journey. He's going to need to give us reasons to say, yes, I want what God has provided through you. I believe that you are the life. And so this verse captures something of both of those purposes for this trip that Jesus would take. Perhaps a fitting metaphor for Jesus' journey is the arduous climb to the top of the world, Mount Everest. Um, in both cases, there's an objective that needs to be accomplished. In both cases, there are obstacles and barriers that will have to be overcome. In both cases, there, there's a, a, a number of specialized gear 
specialized tools that are going to be needed if you're going to reach the summit. Consider just a, a few of the obstacles that Mount Everest poses to those who would try to climb to its summit. There's the freezing cold. Even in the summertime, the average temperature at the summit is negative 2 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 34 degrees, as we know, below the freezing point of water. The average temperature in the summer. Uh, and then once you get to base camp, which is already at a pretty good altitude, and you're ready to launch up into the real climb of Mount Everest, the first thing you come across is Kumbuhu Icefall. And I probably didn't say that right. And it has shifting ice. It has deep crevices that must be traversed. And then not only that, but, but this, this ice fall is right beside giant cliffs that go up. And from up there, ice does fall down and there's avalanches that come. And so as you're crossing, there's always the danger of falling ice just knocking you off of the, the ladders down into the crevice never to be seen again. When you continue past that, there's other obstacles. But another major one that's encountered is encountered at almost the summit. As start to get close to the summit, one must climb Lhotse Face. It is a sheer ice wall, massive. And the only way to get across it is using fixed ropes. If you try to stand on it, you can slide. Of course, you have specialized gear, those shoes with all those spikes in them to try to hold you from sliding right off. And not only that, but as you get closer and closer to the summit, which is at nearly at 30,000 feet, there's the lack of oxygen as it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. That can cause sluggishness and possibly disorientation. But unlike climbing a mountain with its formidable passive resistance... The story that we find in the Gospel of John is that Jesus embarked on an expedition where an active dark world did not want to grant him a single foothold in providing eternal life. And so what we're going to do this evening is follow the Gospel of John's leading. And so let's walk with Jesus through his ministry. And this is his expedition, not ours. We're just observers watching the obstacles, learning about the tools that he will use to reach that summit. And if he's going to reach the summit, the, and if it's going to be a successful climb, he must not only provide eternal life, but give us reasons to believe in him. What we'll find is that there are many active barriers along the way. Consider how the very air that is breathed and one's experiences in this world can jade one's understanding. Think about life. There can be just too many voices. Uh, too many lies. We, we, we've heard people say things and discovered afterwards it's a lie. Living life in this world, there can be just too many painful memories to really be open to some ideas. There can be just too many competing values to know what is really valuable. Take Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, a powerful Roman governor, 
He knows what works. He has risen through the ranks. He knows politics. He knows how to get a job done. He's heard just about everything you possibly could possibly hear. And so how does a sophisticated governor like Pontius Pilate, who's representing the power of Rome over this conquered people, these Jews, respond to one that the Jews bring forth themselves? A peasant. How does he respond to the peasant's claim? Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked, what is truth? You see, Jesus is going to find no easy reception on this climb. Today, turn on the internet. I don't care what idea you have. I'm pretty much convinced you can find someone saying something exactly the opposite on the internet. The sources of point and counterpoint can become tiring in trying to sort out what's a reliable answer. I remember reading Harper's Magazine. Uh, An article in there was written by a professor. And he was complaining about Wikipedia. Now, of course, we all know Wikipedia is where you go to get the answers, right? And he was complaining and and he saw this article, an area of his specialty, and he said, okay, I'm going to change it. So he modified it. Boom, it got changed right back. Well, I'm going to change it. I'll put my, the references to the data to where you can find the information that this is right. Boom, got changed back. He did this several times. He got frustrated. He wrote to Wikipedia and said, you're wrong. Here's the data. Here's the evidence. You're wrong. You need to change it. And then he quotes the letter from Wikipedia back to him. We're not in the business of giving truth. We're in the business of giving what is properly considered to be truth. What is truth? We too live in a society filled with sophistication. Perhaps we too can sympathize with Pilate and his question, what is truth? And whether Pilate's response to what is truth reveals cynicism or skepticism, either way, we see the confusion that can result from living in this world. And Pilate had heard so many perspectives and claims. Why should he take this one from a man? If you're on the side of truth, you listen to me. Why should he take this one seriously? That's a barrier. There's another barrier that we find that Jesus will encounter as he's trying to go to the summit. Living in all this world with its influences can, can lead to us ingesting ideas, to, to ingesting thoughts that can predispose us against Christ and against His claims. In response to Philip's claim, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets also wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is wonderful news, but Nathaniel hears what Philip says, and Nathaniel replies, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, if I'm expecting something big, something important, you know, the one that Moses wrote about, the one that the prophets wrote, I'm going to look to Jerusalem, not Hickville. Nazareth? That little community, village? Really? That's where... 
this one comes from? People familiar with Jesus' family balked at his teachings. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? We've seen him grow up. We know him. How can this this one say, he's come down from heaven? That makes no sense at all. There's another obstacle that Jesus would encounter as he's trying to, to teach people that he has the life and he tries to make that available to them. You know, sometimes people have knowledge but they falsely assume that what they understand is complete, that it is sufficient. And so because of what they have in their hand, they then look at Jesus with what they have in their hand and go, uh-uh, can't be Jesus. So we read another story from the Gospel of John. Some said, this is the Christ. Yeah, this is the Messiah. But still others said, no, for the Christ does not come from Galilee, does he? Don't the Scriptures say that the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? Well, they had some knowledge, and it's right. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And they also had a piece of knowledge, and it was right. Jesus came from Galilee, or at least after he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus would encounter a crowd in Jerusalem who raised further objections, barriers to accepting him. We have heard from the law that Christ must remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? You know, how can you talk about the Son of Man being crucified if the, the, this one is going to, to live, the, the Christ is going to live forever, remain forever? Does Christ remain forever? He's forever alive. They had some truth. They had some truth, but they did not fully comprehend. Even today, how many people hesitate in coming to Jesus just because they have something in their hand that they hold to be true and they think that what they have in their hand is the full truth and can negate Christ. But if they had full understanding, they would see that all truth supports Christ. But there were even darker obstacles, darker resistance, That would be against Christ. Coming from deep within the human heart, dark forces resisting his every step toward his goal. Although Jesus could provide good reasons to believe his claims, he's going to encounter people's hearts resisting him. And so there's many among the ruling class who believe the claims of Jesus, but they would not confess Jesus to be the Christ so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Another example from the Gospel of John. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. As Jesus is going to make his way toward the summit and toward the goal, his two goals of providing life and giving us reason, he's going to need some specialized tools. And we can read about some of these in the Gospel of John. The first that we find in this Gospel 
is John the Baptist. Here is a tool that God would provide. John the Baptist, a popular religious figure in the time of Jesus, one that the historian Josephus would write about. John the Baptist is going to provide Jesus with a platform of credibility. Already John has a following. Already people recognize and and are saying that he's a prophet and, and someone from God. And now he's going to turn and say, let me tell you about this one who is coming. He's going to provide a platform of credibility that can help launch Jesus forward. A tool that God provided. On the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, After me comes a man who is greater than I am, because he existed before me. Another specialized tool that we find Jesus utilizing in the Gospel of John is nothing less than insight provided by God. To a skeptical Nathaniel who would doubt that anything good could come out of Nazareth, Jesus will pull out this specialized tool. Jesus greeted Nathaniel with, Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, to a skeptical type of a person, this sounds like flattery. You know, to me, if someone were to say something like, okay, we've got a slick manipulator. And so Nathaniel's going to ask him, how do you know me? How do you know me, Jesus? Jesus replied, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You know, this is, this is not a, a verse that's claiming Jesus has eagle eyes and could look across the field and see a fig tree with, Nathan, with uh, Nathaniel underneath it and Philip walk over and they come over here. No. John is telling us that wherever Nathaniel was, Jesus knew that he was under that fig tree when Philip came to him. And in fact, Nathaniel recognizes The significance of what he has just been told. How how could Jesus possibly know that I was under a fig tree when when, when Philip came to me and called me and and told me about you and, and then I've walked all this distance and found you? And we find that in the heart of Nathaniel, Jesus gets a foothold as Nathaniel begins to praise this one he's just met. To a Samaritan woman at a well who admitted that she had no husband, Jesus again would draw on this specialized tool and says, Right you are when you say, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Yeah, you told the truth. She would be overwhelmed by his insight into her life. She'll go back to her village and she'll tell them, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You know, is this not the Messiah? A foothold. As Jesus moves up the mountain. There's another tool that Jesus would use. A specialized tool. It deals with his control of destiny and time. We find him at this time teaching in the temple. And as he teaches in the temple, he tells the people, I have not come on my own initiative, 
But the one who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I have come from him and he sent me. Now, the people don't like what he has said. They find this offensive. So they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because because his time had not come. Yet many of the crowd believed. Here at the the Jerusalem in the temple, the crowd is going to hear Jesus say something and they're ready to seize him. This will happen several times throughout his life. The crowd, the people, they're ready to seize him. They're ready to kill him. They're ready to stop the mission, stop the journey, dismiss the claims of this guy. We're done with him. They will try to put an end to it, but they cannot because Jesus has a tool It's not my time and you can't touch me. In fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 10 and verse 18. He would would teach that he was not a victim. He would never be a victim. That he had the authority to lay down his life and no one could take it from him. He had the authority to lay it down and to take it back up. But as Jesus taught Many in the crowd believed he gained a foothold. And steadily Jesus moves toward the summit, toward fulfilling his purpose. But as he goes along this trek, he's going to be teaching. And for people to understand what he would provide and the danger that they face if they don't accept the, the truth of what he is um, announcing, he's going to relentlessly teach. There will be Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus under the cover of night. And Jesus taught him, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus has heard this language before. In the first century, the rabbis, they taught that Gentiles who proselytized to Judaism, to quote them, if anyone becomes a proselyte, he is like a child newborn. If you want to receive the blessings of God and be a part of what God is doing in this world, part of the kingdom of God, you've got to become a child newborn, Gentile. That's the language they used in the first century. Like other Jews, Nicodemus would have assumed that simply by virtue of being Abraham's descendant, Father Abraham, I, he's my father. This was sufficient to secure God's blessings. So Jesus presses on teaching this one. I tell you the solemn truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Well, Jesus is placing Nicodemus outside with the Gentiles. And Nicodemus is going to balk at even the possibility of such a thing. He can anticipate from the very beginning, apparently, what what Jesus is leading up to. But Jesus cuts through him feigning ignorance. In verse 10, he says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't know these things. Come on, Nicodemus. You may not like it, but you don't know this. Jesus is teaching and it's in compassion. In compassion, he's going to explain in rabbinic terms even the need that a Pharisaic member of the ruling Jewish council has in order that he too can enter into what God is doing. 
And as Jesus journeyed to fulfill the mission of this expedition, He's going to spell out the message in plain terms to His disciples. He will speak of the eternal life that they're going to have. I'm going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. But to those who are resisting the message, he warns them in hope. There's compassion and hope that they will change their hearts before it's too late. And Jesus will tell them, I'm going away and you will look for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin. Perhaps Jesus' most specialized tool for winning the incredulous involved lacing His ministry with the miraculous. Even Nicodemus had acknowledged about Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing unless God was with him. Jesus would reason, I have a testimony greater than that from John. Yes, John gave him a platform. Yes, John gave him some initial credibility. He continues, for the deeds that the Father has assigned me to complete, the very deeds that I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. And so just outside of Jerusalem, in that little village of Bethany, Jesus would raise to life Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days. He would say, Lazarus, come out. And while raising the dead or or feeding 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee or, or opening the eyes of a blind man, all brought physical blessing, that did not achieve the purpose of the miracle. That, that, that was a blessing to them. But that's not the end and the reason. No, Jesus performed these miracles to teach. If I can raise the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And, you know, if I can provide food so that your, your physical body has sustenance and you can have life, physical life, know that I am the source of eternal life. If I can give light to the eyes of a blind man, know that I am the light of the world. And I'm shining in this dark world. And if you want the life, if you want the light, you need to come to me. All of his miracles will underscore a profound truth. The truth of his message. I have come as a light into the world and everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I do not judge him. Interesting statement about his his journey. I've come on this journey to give life. I've not come to to judge. I'm on your side. I'm trying to help you. I've come to give you life. For I've not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him at the last day. Something interesting about the Gospel of John. The opposite of believe in the Gospel of John is not disbelief. The opposite of believe repeatedly throughout is disobey. 
You see, when John writes about believing in Christ, he's not writing about, I believe certain truths. That, yeah, these things, I believe they're true about Christ. He's talking about a person who is responding to the message, who's going to obey and rely. And it's a, a life response to the Son of God. Yes, they believe things to be true about Him, but they're obeying His message. And so to those who had believed some truths about Him, He says, now if you obey My teachings, then are you My disciples. In the Gospel of John, Belief has the idea of obeying. And His miracles are going to underscore His message. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And so finally, at the end of the book, Jesus will hear that some Gentiles have heard about Him and they're wanting to see Him. And Jesus will announce that the time has come to take that step to the summit. The time has come, he said, for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the solemn truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Ironically, his opponents are convinced that they're going to finally put a stop to Him. They're going to finally stop this journey. They're going to finally stop all these teaching, all the frustration, all the irritation that this man is creating. What we're going to do is we're going to crush Him. We're going to get rid of Him. We're going to kill Him. It's going to be over. And in the very act that they think is crushing, He achieves victory and reaches the summit. And His death ensures that eternal life is available to us. As John starts to bring the story of Jesus to that final step, we can listen into Jesus as he's praying near the summit about his journey and what he's done. I glorified you on earth, he says to his Father, by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. The following day, Jesus will be crucified. He reaches the summit. And John will imp repeatedly impress upon us that Jesus' crucifixion was occurring on the day of, pass of uh, preparation for the Passover. And so thus, it's on the same day that the Passover lambs are being slain. The and the Passover meal is going to be eaten. And the Jews are going to be reminded that long ago, God had delivered them. He, he had saved them. When He saw the blood, He passed over Israel and death did not come to them. On the very same day that they'll be celebrating the life that God gave, the Lamb of God is going to die for the sins of the world. That those who look to Him might receive life. The summit has been reached. God has made the life which was in the Word that became flesh available to all of humanity. God has provided us sufficient reasons to believe. Well, how does the journey impact us? He's completed the mission, the journey. How will it impact our lives? We have free will. We can allow our hearts to be resistant to that purpose that He had in giving us reason to believe in Him. We can reject His claims. 
We can just put it into the I'll think about it later box and just not try to face the decision. Jesus says you can't do that. Either you're for me or against me. There is no middle ground. Either for me or against me. And He forces us to make that decision. To put Him in, I'll think about it later, is at that moment at least to say no. So how are we responding to Jesus? Are there barriers within our hearts that have prevented us from responding to God's will for our lives? I pray not. And, and most of us here have. Have responded to Christ and have received the life that He's made available. But there's a second part of how does this journey impact our lives? And that's what are we doing now with Christ? Jesus would teach in John 15, The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. God wants us to bear fruit. He's the vine. We're the branches. We need to remain in Him and be strong. Jesus' journey is, is not simply some intellectual detached look of a story in history so long ago. It's the expedition of the Son of God to earth who went to death and has gone back to heaven in order to bring life to us. I pray that each of us will respond favorably to the journey of Jesus. If it may be that someone needs to respond in some way either to the gospel or has a prayer request, why not make that known now as we stand and sing?